I should like to call your attention this evening to that incident in the life and ministry of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is recorded in that portion of Scripture, the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 12, which we read at the beginning. I want, in particular, to call attention to verses 23 and 28. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now this is a most important and interesting event in our Lord's life and ministry. You remember that here a certain number of Greeks who come up to worship at the feast, approached Philip of Bethsaida and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now this is interesting for this reason. So far our Lord's ministry had been amongst the Jews. He had said himself that he had not come except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And his ministry had been a ministry to the Jews, dealing with the law, arguing with the Pharisees and scribes, and so on, and instructing those who had been brought up as Jews and in the Jewish religion. But here he's approached by Gentiles, those who don't belong to the chosen race, the chosen nation of Israel. And this, therefore, is, I say, a most important point, for we, most of us, are Gentiles. And therefore what we read here is something that has a very definite and distinct message uh, to give to us. Here are men who come then, who are not Jews, and express this desire to see Jesus. And the message is taken to our Lord. But he doesn't see them. He refuses uh, to receive them. But, and this is the thing which is to engage our attention this evening, he gives his reason for not seeing them at that particular point. And the reason which he gives, as you notice, is this. He says he can only be understood in the light of his death upon the cross and the resurrection which followed it. Now he makes that abundantly clear at once. When he receives this request, he, his reply is, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. There's your seed of corn. But if you just leave it on a table or on a shelf somewhere, it doesn't produce anything. If you want it to produce something, it's got to be buried, as it were, in the ground. It's got to die and be buried, and then it will bring forth much fruit. And what he's saying is that he is like that. That he can't be of benefit to these people. He can't bear this fruit until he has died. Indeed, later on he puts it still more plainly. And I, he says in verse 32, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now, all men there, obviously in the context, means this. All types of men, all nations of men. You see, he's confronted here, as I say, by a new, a novel situation. He's no longer dealing with Jews only. Here's a request from Greeks. 
And what he's saying is, as I am now, I can't deal with Greeks. But when I'm lifted up, when I'm crucified, when I have risen again from the dead and have ascended into heaven, then I am in a position to deal with all men, Greeks as well as Jews, men of all nations under heaven. But his point is that he cannot do that until he has been lifted up. At the moment, he's not in a position to deal with these Greeks. So he makes that statement, Then I will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Now I say, this is still the message. And we must be perfectly clear about this. This is so important because it is the action and the statement of our blessed Lord himself. It's not some theory about him. It is something that he literally and he actually did. Let's look at it therefore like this. There are still many people in the world who are interested in Jesus of Nazareth. There are still people who approach him and who say we would see Jesus. This is still a topic of conversation even in this country which it is increasingly and obviously being recognized has become a heathen country. So a placard just now how heathen is Britain. I heard a statement saying that in the last seven years there's been a declension up to one-third in attendances at places of worship. But still, there's still this interest in Jesus. And people in various ways come and they say, we would see Jesus. His name still gets talked about and written about and discussed. People are very interested in him still. They have their reasons for that. We don't know exactly what the reason that animated these Greeks on this occasion may have been, but they've got some reason, and men and women still have their reason. Some are interested in his person, interested in him as a person, as a figure of history, as one who stands out in history, as one who's had a profound effect upon the whole course of history. They say, you've got to come to some kind of terms with Jesus of Nazareth because he is there, he's got his place in history. And they're interested in him for that reason. Others, as you know, are interested in his teaching. They say, we need some guidance in this world. We see the trouble and the confusion. How is one to live? What's it all about? Ah, they say, here's this teaching of Jesus that has come down the centuries. Isn't that the thing that we need? And so they would see Jesus in order to ask questions about this teaching of his. They want it elaborated in various ways. That's their only interest in him. That incidentally, and I refer to this because of what's happening at the present time, was the attitude of a man like the late Mr. Gandhi. You see, he was interested in the teaching of Jesus. Said he wasn't a Christian and he never was a Christian. But he was interested in the teaching of Jesus. And he borrowed from it as he thought and tried to put it into practice. So there are people who are interested in him because of his teaching. And others are interested in his example. They say, now, here was a man in this same world as we are in. He lived. And he lived in a wonderful way. That's the way to live. And they want to see Jesus in order that they may see how to live and may imitate him and follow him and emulate his example. And there are others who, as I'm going to show you, are interested in his dying, in the way in which he died. And they come and they want to see Jesus in order that they may discover how it is to die. 
Well, it doesn't matter what the reasons are. Men and women, I say, come. There may be many in this congregation tonight, I'm sure there are, who for various reasons, and perhaps partly unconsciously, are here tonight because you want to know something about this Jesus. And so you've come, and you say we would see Jesus. Now, here is the thing that is impressed upon us in this crucial turning point, as it were, in his life and ministry. It is this. He insists that anyone who comes to him and who says, I would see Jesus, he insists that every such inquirer should immediately come face to face with his death. His death upon the cross. Now, in other words, we are entitled to say, therefore, that this is the crucial and the central message of the Christian faith. I want to emphasize this. With our world as it is tonight, what can be more important than just this? What is Christianity? What is this message? Oh, I'm not only thinking about the war and the possibilities of what that local war as it is so far may lead to. We all know the state of the world, the tension, the terrible possibilities, but quite apart from all that, we know that we're in a life in which everything is so uncertain. Only this last week I received a letter informing me of the passing away of a member of this church who was here apparently in perfect health when I last preached from this pulpit. You read constantly of men in the midst of life, young men in the midst of their careers, suddenly dropping dead. My friends, that's the sort of world we're living in. And therefore I say, what is there more urgent and more important than that we should know the truth about this message. Here is something that's been confronting the human race for so long and holds forth its great claim that it and it alone is the way of salvation. I ask what can be more important than that we should know exactly what this is. You say you're interested in Jesus. Very well, here's his answer to you. Face my death. Face my death. He won't see. He doesn't receive the Greeks at this point. I've got to die. I've got to be lifted up. Then, but not without that, can I deal with all kinds and types and conditions of men. Now, this, I say, is the very heart and center of the Christian message. As I'm privileged to resume my ministry here once more, beginning my 28th year in the mercy of God. What can I do better than to remind you of this, my friend? If my preaching isn't about this, the sooner the better I'm out of this pulpit. This is the crucial, central message of the Christian faith. Now, it was always his own message, wasn't it? The Son of Man, he says, come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. This was the great center of his preaching. Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Suddenly seen that he is the Christ, the Son of God, it's been revealed to him, and Peter makes his great confession, but then our Lord goes on to say that immediately that he's got to be rejected of men, that he's got to be crucified, that he's got to die. And Peter doesn't like this, he stumbles at it. Far be this from thee, Lord. Get thee behind me, Satan, says our Lord to Peter. He stumbled at this, but our Lord insists upon this. This is the central message. This is the whole purpose of his coming into this world. And of course, 
You find therefore the same thing in the preaching of the first preachers, the apostles. Peter on the day of Pentecost, he preached this. This was his message. Peter didn't give a resume of the Sermon on the Mount in his Sermon on the day of Pentecost. He preached about the death of our Lord and how it had been predetermined according to the foreknowledge of God and why he did it and so on. That was the essence of his preaching. And of course the Apostle Paul is forever reminding the people to whom he wrote his letters of this thing. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and Christ the wisdom of God. I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He reminds the Galatians how he had placarded him, always held this crucified Christ before them. This is the beginning, the end, the center of the Christian preaching and the Christian message. And in the very last book of the Bible... Unto him that has loved us and washed us in his own blood. Here it is then, I think you'll have to agree, as the very central message of the Christian faith. So it's no use saying I'm interested in Jesus and I'm interested in Christianity. You want this, that and the other. If you say that, if you come to him like that, either directly or through some intermediaries uh, such as these people, Philip and Andrew, or through any preacher, you say, I'm interested. I, I want to know about this Jesus. I want to know about his... Very well, I say, here's the answer. You start by looking at him on the cross. This is crucial. This is central. He says so himself. He puts it dramatically before us by actually refusing to receive these Greeks in order that this truth may be impressed not only upon their minds but upon the minds of all subsequent inquirers throughout the running ages. I therefore ask you this evening to listen to what he's got to say. Here it is. I must be lifted up. The corn of seed, the seed of corn must be buried, must die and be buried in the ground. But that, you see, obviously leads to the next question, which is this. What then is the meaning of this death of his upon the cross? If you say, says someone, that uh, the real essence of this message is his dying upon the cross and his following resurrection, what is the meaning of this cross? Oh, here's the question of questions. And what is almost beyond one's comprehension is to understand how it is that anybody can still be confused as to the meaning of the death of our blessed Lord upon the cross. Well, how, do, how do they interpret it? How do men look at him dying upon the cross? Well, you know, some people still see nothing there but failure. I listened to a very intelligent man recently on the wireless well, let's give his name, because he is a highly intelligent man and an observer, Mr. Malcolm Muggeridge. And he was talking about great men, and he said the test of greatness was uh, the consciousness of failure. He doesn't regard men who feel they've succeeded as being great men. To him, the test of greatness is a consciousness of failure in this world. And he brought out the supreme illustration. He said, uh, didn't even Jesus say it, and wasn't he conscious of his failure? He said on the cross, he said, that he was conscious of a failure. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, there is an intelligent man. But he looks at the cross 
and he sees nothing but a failure. Indeed, I remember a man in the ministry putting it like this many years ago. He was dealing with the words, it is finished. And he said quite seriously that what they meant is this. It's all up. I failed. I thought I'd hoped that I could teach these people and show them the right and the better way. But I failed. They don't understand. It's finished. It's all up. It's the end. I'm done for. You see how important it is to be clear as to the meaning of that death upon that cross. Others think that it's nothing but the result of the political jealousy of the Jews. Of course it was one of the motives that animated Caiaphas and the priests. They thought they'd save the nation by getting rid of this person. Their motive was purely political, but they see nothing but that. Others, of course, see nothing in it but the supreme example of pacifism. There comes your Mr. Gandhi and others. You know, my friends, we are living in an interesting and a strange world. Mr. Gandhi is revered as the man who taught passive resistance, pacifism, thinking he'd borrowed it from Christ. There isn't much pacifism in India and Pakistan tonight, is there? Thus, you see, men misunderstand the gospel and especially misunderstand the central meaning of the cross. They would reduce it to just an example of passive resistance A refusal to defend yourself, a refusal to hit back. Just pacifism and no more. Oh, let me show you this evening how pathetic as well as false these ideas and concepts with regard to the death upon the cross really are. Our Lord here tells us perfectly plainly the meaning of the cross. The first thing he says is this. It is by the cross alone that salvation becomes possible for all men. That is why he doesn't receive the Greeks at this point, as I'm telling you. He can't deal with them at that point. If I be lifted up, then will I draw all men unto me, but not apart from that, not without that. The cross, he says, my death upon the cross, is absolutely essential. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The cross, the death upon the cross, is absolutely essential to the salvation of men and women out of all nations under him. And then he says a second thing about it. It is the cross, and the cross alone, that reveals the glory of the way of salvation. The glory of it all. And this is the thing that I want to take with you this evening. Now these two things, of course, are one. It is because of its glorious character that it is the only way of salvation. It is because it is essential that it is so glorious. So I ask a question at this point. Here's the test of our profession. Do you say you're a Christian? Well, I want to put a question to you. Do you see the absolute necessity of the death of our Lord upon the cross? What's your view of the cross? That's the question. You say the question is, what think ye of Christ? I agree. But if you go to him, he'll tell you, look at my cross. There you get the answer. So it comes to this. What do we think about the cross? Was the cross just a terrible accident? Was it but the result of the stupidity and the ignorance and the malice of men? Is the cross the greatest tragedy that the world has ever known? Is that your view of it? I say, here's the vital question. Do you see, have you seen, that the cross is an absolute necessity? Oh, I want to ask you a further question. Do you glory in the cross? 
He says it's not only essential. He says that it is here that the glory of the way of salvation is truly and only revealed. Now let's look at this in the light of these two statements. Here comes the request. Philip and Andrew go to our Lord and say there are some Greeks here. They want to see you. They've said we would see Jesus. They didn't quite know what the answer was, so they went to our Lord himself. Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Glorified. And he's talking as he tells us about his death upon the cross. But he says, I'm going to be glorified. And then you remember this prayer of his Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from him saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Glory. You see, our Lord is talking about death. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about what people describe, as I say, as failure or as tragedy or as shame or mere passive resistance. He says this is glory. The glory of the cross. Well, where is the glory of the cross? Let me show it to you as it's put before us in this very section. The cross of Calvary, the death of our Lord upon the cross on Calvary's hill, glorifies the Father, God the Father. Father, he says, glorify thy name. Now he'd come into the world in order to do that. That was our Lord's deepest desire, that in and through him and all he did and said, that the name of the Father should be glorified. He said, I seek not mine own honor, but the honor of him that sent me, that means glory. He lived entirely to the glory of God. He had come into the world in order to do that, in order to keep God's commandments, in order to please God in all ways. But what he says here is this, that it is in the cross and the resurrection that he glorifies the Father supremely and most of all. There is nowhere where one can so see the glory of God as in the cross on Calvary's hill. How? Well, you see, this is the great theme of the New Testament, and that is why it's such a lyrical book. That is why there's so much joy in it. That is why people glory in it. God forbids, says the Apostle Paul, that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is it. They gloried in the cross. That is why they held it up, as it were. That is why they put it in the front always, the cross the most glorious thing that had ever happened. And they say it reveals the glory of God. How? Well, the glory of God is something that is revealed in many ways. The hymns declare the glory of God. The firmament telleth it forth. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in writing to the Romans, in the first chapter of his great epistle to them, he says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, etc. Now, what he's saying there is this, that the glory of God is to be seen in the whole of creation. 
Examine it, look at it. Take your flowers, take your mountains, your rivers, look at the sea, look at the sun, the moon, the stars. These are but the works of his fingers. These things are not accident. There's too much perfection there, there's too much order, there's too much design. No, no, these are the marks of his fingers, the great God. And in the way that all things are ordered, in the season, spring, summer, autumn, winter, these are all manifestations of God, the glorious creator, his power, as Paul puts it, and his Godhead is clearly revealed there. And in many other ways, God has revealed his glory. But, and this is what our Lord is really saying here, it is in the cross alone that one rarely sees the glory of God. Oh yes, I should look at nature and I should be able to deduce God and the glory of God. That's Paul's charge against mankind, that it's become so perverted that it can't see that any longer. Man in his sin praises the scientist. Who's the scientist? What has he done? Well, he's only discovered what God has put into creation. He talks about the laws of nature as if he'd made them. He hasn't. He's only found they're there. He should argue from that to the God who's put them there. But he doesn't. He's blinded by sin. But you see, even if men were capable of doing that, he would know nothing beyond God's power and Godhead in the sense that he is the great creator, that he has a master mind and that he's capable of planning. No more, he wouldn't be able to go any further. Oh, it's a magnificent thing to look upon a great storm, the flashing of the lightning, the roar of the thunder. It's God. But you see, it is only a God of power. Power and God is. No, no, if you really want to know the glory of God, you've got, as our Lord tells us, to come and look at the cross on Calvary's hill. Oh, it's there you see the glory of God. How? Well, let me try and give you some glimpse of it this evening. It is there and there alone that you see all the attributes of God meeting together. And shining glorious. Look at that cross. What do you see? Well, the first thing I see is the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the holiness of God. How do I see that? Well, who is this upon the cross? This is the Son of God. This is God's only begotten beloved Son. But he's there hanging on a cross. What is he doing there? How has he got there? Well, I say the answer is not to be given in terms of men. I'll tell you in a moment what it is. But what I see is this. That it is obvious that something has necessitated this. God is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible with God. If God had wanted to deliver his son from the malignity of men, he could have done so with extreme ease. Our Lord himself said that. Do you remember just before his death when some of his own disciples were getting a bit concerned about him? He said, don't you know that I could very easily command twelve legions of angels and I could be easily wafted to heaven? Quite simple. No trouble at all. God had taken a man like Moses from the top of a mountain to heaven. He'd taken Elijah in the same way and he could have delivered his son, could have taken him back to heaven with extreme ease. But he doesn't. There is the Son of God dying upon a tree. Why? Now there's only one answer to this question. 
It is to declare the righteousness and the justice and the holiness of God. How? In this way. That God has said that sin is to be punished. God has stated that. He states it in the Ten Commandments. He states it in many other places. God is a holy God. He can't wink at sin. He can't pretend he hasn't seen it. People say, oh, God's a God of love. And if you tell him you're sorry, it's all right. But it isn't, my dear friend. If you say that, you know nothing about the righteousness and the justice and the holiness of God. God is not as a man. God can't pretend and play fast and loose with holiness. God is holy. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. And when I look at his son hanging upon that cross, what I see above everything else when I first look is the justice, the righteousness, the holiness of God. He has said the soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And you know we are living in a moral universe. I know the modern world doesn't believe that. It doesn't believe in morality. It doesn't believe in discipline. It doesn't believe in righteousness and justice. Hence your modern model. But God is righteous and holy and just and pure. He says it must be done. He'll never vary it. He can't change it. And there he's declaring it. His own son dies. Because the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of God must be vindicated. Sin must be punished. And sin was punished upon the cross. That's what's happening there. It is God punishing sin. Sin has got to be punished, even though it means smiting his own son, even though it means the death of his only begotten. That is the great assertion of the righteousness and the justice and the holiness of God. What a glorious God. He is indeed light, and in him is no darkness at all. There is no qualification of his righteousness there is no qualification of his justice, nor of his holiness. There's no compromise. God is and is absolute in all his attributes. And every one of them shines out on the cross. It's only there you see that. Oh, you can read the Ten Commandments. And you come to the conclusion that God is a lawgiver and is a righteous and a holy God. But you see, you can't be sure there that he's not prepared to accommodate it. There on the cross he says once and forever, no accommodation, no compromise, no qualification. Even on his son, the vials of his wrath must be poured out. Righteousness, justice, holiness in their absolute degree. But it isn't only that, is it? And thank God it isn't. Why is the son of God there? Why is he doing that to him? Do you know anything about the love of God and his mercy and his compassion? Oh, you can read about that again in the Old Testament, as a father pitieth his children, as one that is comforted by his mother. These are the terms used about God, and the New Old Testament has got a great deal about this. But if you really want to know anything about the love of God and his mercy and his compassion, you've got to go to that cross on Calvary's hill. That's why the Lord says to Greeks and everybody else, if you're interested in the love of God and if you're interested in all these great matters, come and look at me hanging on a cross. What do I see? This is what I see. God so loved the world, so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, gave him to that, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you want to know anything about the love of God? Do you think you believe in the love of God? Well, my dear friend, you don't, you know, unless you've seen it as it's streaming and shining out upon the cross. Listen to the apostle putting it to the Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace he has saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. It's there and there alone that you see it. You see, what I see in the cross is this. This glorious God, the God who made us, the God who's given us life, the God who sends the rain and the sun, provides us with food and clothing and all things that are so essential. The God who ordained the family as the fundamental unit in life, marriage, all these things, this great, wonderful God who made a perfect world, yes, but we've all sinned against him. And we've made of our world a place of shame and of darkness and of ugliness. We've marred his glorious creation. We've made it a foul and a vile thing very often. That's what we've done to God and his perfect work. That's how we've requited all his dealings with us and all his grace with respect to us. We've floated his laws. We've spat upon the decencies and the sanctities. And we are here deserving nothing but punishment and hell. But you know that cross tells me this. That God, in spite of that, has loved us. God so loved the world. This world as it is tonight. In his holiness. In all his glory. He looks down upon this world as it is in sin and shame. And he's loved it in this sense. He has done this even for us. Well, there's the argument of the great apostle. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He says it's possible for a very good man to die for another, but this is how God commends his love to us. That while we were enemies and sinners and utterly vile and without any strength at all, he sent his son to die for us. I say, if you want to know something about the glory of God, if you want to know not only his justice, his righteousness and holiness, but his love and mercy and compassion and pity, go to the cross. You can't see it anywhere else. But there you see it shining upon you and The last thing to which I would refer tonight, this, my friends, is an endless theme. I'm just picking out some of these glorious attributes. Look at the wisdom of God. If you want to know about the wisdom of God, it's there you see it. Oh, I know to create the world was a tremendous thing. And the more the scientists reveal to us the wonders of nature, the more one marvels at the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding of God. But that is nothing when you put it by the side of this. I say once more, as I've often said from this pulpit, 
To create was not a difficulty with God. God only has to say and it happens. He said let there be light and there was light. There's no difficulty. The word of his fiat is enough. God can bring a thing to being out of nothing. He has all power. But you know, the problem of the world posed a mighty problem even to God. Here's the problem. The apostle puts it in Romans 3 in verses 25 and 26. Here is the problem. How can this just and righteous and holy God ever forgive sin? Because he has said, and his nature insists upon it, that sin must be punished. And the punishment of sin, as I say, is death. Well, very well then, how can anybody be forgiven? Here is a problem. God's love and mercy and compassion desire to forgive. The justice and the righteousness and the holiness say, we must be honored. How can these things be reconciled? And men can't reconcile. Men in his fallen, perverted condition thinks that the love of God somehow does this, but it doesn't, you see, because their notion of love is injustice, unrighteousness. Pretending he hasn't seen it, saying it's all right, we'll forget all about it. But you know, I say again, God can't do that, because all his qualities in their glory are absolutes. And here is a problem that no man can solve, and men cannot. But God has, and here you see the wisdom of God. He has found a way, and this is the way. He will send his only begotten Son into the world. He will make him to be born of a woman. He will make him take on human nature. He will make him to become a man. And here in his own Son become men. He has found the way out. And the way out is this. He will take our sins and he'll put them on him. He will make him our representative. He will lay on him the iniquity of us all. He will start a new humanity in him. But first of all, he's got to deal with the problem of our sin and guilt and shame. And there he has found a way. He has found his own lamb. The lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Sin must be punished. The punishment is death. Blood must be shed. The life must be poured out. How can it be done? There's only one. It's the Son of God. So God sends his own Son and lays on him our iniquity, punishes him for us, and thereby offers us free pardon and forgiveness. There's only one thing to say. Oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. My dear friend, have you ever seen the glory of God? Our Lord says, Father, glorify thyself. Glorify thy name. And the Father answers saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. As I send you to the cross, and as I deal with you there, I shall be manifesting my glory. I am going to glorify myself as never before. In what is going to happen on the cross. Can't you see now how crucial this cross is? 
Can't you see that this is necessary? Because here and here alone we come to a real and a true knowledge of God. That's the first thing you see in the cross. Let me hurry to the second. It is the cross that glorifies the Son also as well as the Father. He says it himself. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's referring to his death. He'd already revealed a lot of his glory, hadn't he? He revealed it in his understanding, in his understanding of the law, in his teaching. People were amazed at him. They said, this man speaketh with authority and not as the scribes. Who is this? How is this man learning, never having learned? That's a part of his glory. He couldn't conceal it. He could not be hid, as we are told, somewhere. Yes, there were glimpses of his glory. They came out here and there. But you know, it's only in the cross and in the resurrection that you rarely see the glory of Christ. These people put a question after all this. They said, who is this son of man? They don't understand this. The people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And thou sayest, thou the son of man must be lifted up. Who is this son of man? And that's the question. We would see Jesus. Who is he? What is he? The answer is given and only given fully and finally there upon the cross and in the resurrection. Here are some of the things that we are told about it. You notice how he puts it? He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Oh, who is this? Who is this son of man? He's one who is able to say, I have come unto this hour. I have come. Not I have been born into the world, but I have come. What's he telling us? Well, he's telling us that he's come from another world. He's telling us about the incarnation. He's telling us that he's a visitor into this world. He's telling us that he's not just a man amongst men. He is the son of man. Unique. The second Adam. Someone apart from all other men and women. He is one who's entered into life. He has come from above. He has descended from the Father. Son of man who has come unto this hour. He has come to perform a special task. Now watch him. This is where you see the glory. So he goes steadfastly to that hour, to the cross. He says, I am troubled. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, no. I came into the world in order to come to this hour. You see, the cross isn't an accident. The cross isn't merely the result of the malignity of men. It's not the result of some political chicanery or devilry. No, no. It's an hour appointed by God in eternity. He knew he'd been sent for this. He's come into the world to perform a deliberate task. And he says, the hour has come. I'm about to reveal my final glory by dying upon a cross. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And here, look at it. He is lying, he is hanging there upon that cross. What's he doing there? Well, he's being condemned. What for? For nothing. He was innocent. No one could prove any charge against him at all. He'd never done anybody any wrong. He is guiltless before God. He is absolutely innocent before God and men, free from sin. And yet there he is hanging and dying upon a cross. 
punished like a felon, a criminal, and he dies. What is this? Well, I've already given you the answer. Here he is, he's born, the mocking and the derision, the sarcasm and the scorn. They've thrust the crown of thorns upon his holy brow. They've caused him to carry a cross until he staggers beneath it. And the whole world is mocking and jeering at him in his suffering and pain and anguish. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingling down. Look at it, my friend. And what do you see? You see the glory of his love. He's gone there deliberately. What for? Well, for you, for me. Sinful creatures as we are, guilty before God, hell-bound as we all are by nature. He, the innocent, the pure, the guiltless, has deliberately gone there to take our punishment. It's his love. There's the glory of his love and mercy and compassion. Behold it. Survey this wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. But observe this as he tells us here. You see who he is? It's a crucial moment in the history of the whole world. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Did you know, my friends, that the most important thing that's ever happened in this world was that thing that happened on the cross on Calvary's Hill? More important than any war, more important than any battle, more important than any event, whatever it may have been, this is the crucial turning point. Now is the judgment of this world. The whole fate of the world is being determined, settled, sealed, there by that death upon the cross. Here is one who can play a part in that, in the crucial central part. There's his glory for you. He's son of God. He's son of men. He is savior, mediator, redeemer. He's at the center of the universe. He's at the center of history. The judgment of this world. Now, he says, is the prince of this world cast out. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Do you know what that means? It means this. The moment men accepted the temptation of, the, of Satan, the wily serpent, man not only fell, but he became the slave of the devil. And the devil became the god of this world, and the devil has been ruling the world ever since. But here, you see, on the cross, this crucial thing takes place. The devil is being ousted. The devil is being robbed of his position. He's being thrown out. This is the greatest event in the whole of history. The kingdom of the devil has been shaken and removed. And the kingdom of God established with his Son upon the throne. The devil has been conquered. The devil has been vanquished. The prince of this world has been cast out. And here is the one who has done it. Don't you see his glory? No man could do this. All men had been defeated by the devil. But here is one who can defeat the devil. Rob him of his armor. Throw him out of his kingdom. And reign in his stead. And so he is the savior of all men. And I, if I be lifted up, 
will draw men unto me, all types and kinds of men. He is not merely a Jewish teacher, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish thinker. He is the center of humanity. He is the savior of the world. He is the man, the second Adam, the founder of a new humanity. He is the king of glory. There it's all seen upon the cross. That's what was happening there. Fancy men saying that it's nothing but failure. And that when he said it is finished, he meant it's all up, I failed. He meant I've done it all, it's all completed. There's nothing left to be done. I've borne the punishment of the sin completely. I've routed the enemy. I've turned the principalities and powers and put them to an open shame. It is finished. There's nothing else that you sent me to do that is to be done. I've done it all. Every single detail is carried out. It's finished. That's what he said. And he gloried in it. The glory of the cross. Well, very well, my friends, as I close, I simply want to put a simple question to you. I've tried to show you that the cross reveals the glory of the Father and that the cross reveals the glory of the Son. Here's my question. Do you glory in it? Have you seen this glory? Can you say, did you sing honestly and from your heart just now, in the cross of Christ, I glory. Do you? How do we do so? How can we give proof that we really glory in the cross of Christ? Well, here are the tests. You show that you glory in the cross of Christ by realizing and confessing your guilt and your shame. Do you glory in the cross? If you do, it means that you realize you're a sinner, a sinner before God. It means that you realize that you're under condemnation. It means that you realize that you deserve nothing from God except punishment, except hell. That's what it means. You can't glory in the cross without believing those things. You see your shame, your guilt, your failure, your hell-deserving character. You realize something further, and that is that you're completely helpless. That you can do nothing at all about saving yourself or delivering yourself. It means that you say nothing about all your good deeds, all your righteousness and all your morality. Indeed, it means that you must look at them and say with the Apostle Paul, I count it all but dung and refuse. My righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. You can't glory in the cross and in yourself at the same time. It's impossible. The man who glories in the cross is the man who sees that he is a vile, a hopeless, foul, helpless sinner. And then it means this, that he realizes that the one who died on that cross on Calvary's hill is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and that he and he alone uh, can save us. It means that you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnate Son of God, that he came down from him and was born of a virgin's womb, that he'd taken human nature to him, two natures in one person. And that he has come to save you, that he alone can, and that he's done it. 
but it means further that you realize that he did it by dying for you. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So you don't merely believe in his person and believe in his teaching. You believe specifically that he saves you because he died for you. Because he bore your sins in his own body on the tree. Because he received your punishment. Because he was your substitute. And that he died in your place. That's what it means to glory in the cross. Because that's the thing that saves you. Secures your pardon, your forgiveness, your reconciliation unto God. And lastly he tells us that it means this. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor, glorify. So here, you see, is the final test. Do you glory in the cross of Christ? Well, this is your way of giving proof of it. That you hate your life in this world. That you hate the life of this world. That you see how the life of mankind is against God. That it's evil. That it's foul. That all the things the world are gloating in tonight and bursting of, you see them now as the works of the devil, the works of the flesh, ugly, foul, vile, an offense to this holy God. Such a terrible thing that nothing but the cross could deliver you from it. It means that you must hate your life in this world. And once a man sees his sinfulness and vileness, once a man has some dim conception of the holiness of God and his righteousness, he hates himself, he hates his sin, he hates the world to which he belongs, all the organized evil, the sex, the vileness, the foulness that passes as life. He sees it out of the pit and of hell. He hates the life of this world. And he turns his back upon it. He believes in one who can deliver him from it. And enable him to resist it. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So he takes up his cross. He knows he'll be laughed at by the world. They say, what? Still believing that Jesus is the Son of God? What? Still believing in the cross? Still talking about the blood? Man alive! Don't you know you're in the 20th century? It doesn't matter. He hates that. He knows that's the lie of the devil. That men have always said that throughout the centuries. It doesn't matter. All that that belongs to, he knows is vile and leads to final perdition. He turns his back. He follows Christ. He takes up his cross. He follows him. He serves him. He knows that the world will not honor him. But he knows that God will. And he that serveth me, my father will honor him. And the one thing this man is after is to be honored of God, to know God, to love God, to serve God, to glorify God, and eventually, when he does, have to leave this world to look into the face of God.
and spend his eternity in his glorious presence. Oh, my dear friends, I ask you, therefore, do you glory in the cross of Christ? Can you say honestly beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand? Do you say that? That's what it means to glory in the cross. Do you say, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place? I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by to know no gain nor loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all oh, the cross. Amen.